Uh, I want to say, um, you know, before before starting all of this, um, this has been a real uh, pleasure to get to preach for you these last five weeks, and looking forward to uh, turning it over to Charles and hearing from uh, him again um, next week. But it really is a joy um, to to study and to wrestle with God's word and to bring it here to you guys. Because while that certainly, I know Charles would say the same, this has its lonely elements to it. It really is a community exercise. Um, It is not just to teach, but it is to struggle with God together, um, with coming together as a community um, to learn and and talk about these things. Um, And it is in God's providence, just simply by the fact that uh, this psalm is the next in order. Uh, We've been going through them all in order that we are come to Psalm 22 uh, this morning, which is a famous psalm. Um, mostly because it is from here that Jesus, while he was hanging on the cross, quoted the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and this is a heavy and it is a sober psalm um, that deals with one of the most sensitive um, issues of all of our lives. Um, and that is the reality of suffering um, in life, even in the life of faithfulness uh, before God. And I, I have suffered in some ways and been greatly blessed in other ways. I know some of the burdens of this group, and not others, and not most. Um, But I do want to acknowledge the fact that this really is a a difficult topic, and you are all bringing in your own stories into this um, that uh, greatly enrich this conversation, um, and in, in a way that we are doing this together. And so I'm just saying this to acknowledge, one, the sobriety of what we're going to talk about, and the sensitivity with how that may and may not strike you in your own life, but also as an invitation for us as a community and not just as individuals to wrestle uh, with these true and good words that God has given to all of us as a gift uh, this morning. So with all that being said, uh, let's go before it and read it. It is fairly lengthy. Um, And so we will uh, not get into all of the details in it this morning, but we will read the whole thing so we can experience it as it was intended. Uh, This is Psalm 22, as to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. This is God's word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a raving and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, 
and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Dear Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, of all of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight this morning. And would you have mercy on us as we sit in need of hearing, not just from me and not just of my thoughts, but from you, our Savior and our Redeemer. Would you please make us all soft together before you? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there are many themes in this psalm. And as I said, it is very long and there are many things that we could talk about. Um, I think one of the main things that we just cannot deny running through the beginning, it starts in verse 1 and it doesn't finish, is the reality of tension. Um, This is a psalm of explicit tension in the life of faith. It starts with my God on the one hand who has abandoned me on the other hand. And the rest of the psalm from that point is a wrestling with those two realities and tension together. That there could be a God uh, who is not only exists and is control of all things, but is personal and who has devoted himself um, to um, not only this singer, but to the people of God. And yet at the same time, that there can be a reality of great suffering in life. Um, and it's tension, that this is a real tension. And there is a rule in just a rule of thumb in all of nature um, is that tension always seeks resolution. Uh, you've probably heard that, um, and you probably can think of ways um, where that is the case in so many spheres of life. And you just think about a rubber band. That if you pull a rubber band, and the more tension that you pull on the rubber band, the more that rubber band is going to try to resolve the tension in some way uh, by pulling it back to itself. And I think that the reason why we are given this psalm is because in these kinds of tensions that we face, 
um, especially when we experience suffering in our own lives. And by the way, this is not just our own suffering, that this is a psalm that was given to a group of people. And so it might be ours and it might be another's. And so I want us to think about this also in terms of the community um, as in addition to thinking about it ourselves. But when we are faced with this tension, that tension is just going to yearn and to try to find a way that this makes sense and to try to find a way to resolve it. And usually it comes down to um, one of two things. is either there is something wrong with God or there's something wrong with me. And that if we can accept one of those two things, that maybe the tension will at least lessen because it makes more sense, because there's something in particular um, that we can point to it. And I want to read, I, might, I cannot remember if I've read this before for a while ago. This is a quote from a New Testament scholar at uh, North Carolina named Bart Ehrman. Um, who um, would consider himself an agnostic, but he was talking about his testimony, and he said this. That about nine or ten years ago, I came to realize that I simply no longer believed the Christian message. I simply no longer could hold to the view, which I took to be essential to Christian faith, that God was active in the world, that he answered prayer, that he intervened on behalf of his faithful. And so he, what he said explicitly, I think, is one of those things that we often feel. That there were a lot of issues to this. And I'm not meaning to reduce, um, and I'm certainly not saying this to be disrespectful to Bar Ehrman. I'm just saying it because of how relatable this actually is. And that is an example of someone when faced with the tension um, that it just doesn't seem like God intervenes. It just doesn't seem like he's there. It doesn't seem like prayer is answered that one of the ways to actually solve that tension must be that there is something wrong with God, uh, that he can't be there, uh, that none of this makes sense. And we will feel that in one way or the other. Um, Again, either to bring into question, um, is God actually there? Is he actually worth even praying to and asking for help? Or there's something wrong with me. Um, This is somehow is my fault um, that all of this is happening. And why we are given this psalm is because this tension is a real thing in the Christian life. Um, And it is going to bring before us not to ignore these questions, but actually to help us wrestle with it. And I think that there are three key questions that we might come up with on our own um, that we ask when faced with suffering that this psalm, I think, very clearly um, speaks to. Um, And there are going to be three points. Uh, The first is, is this normal? is the first question. Is this actually a real part of life, of the life of faith, or is there something wrong with it? Uh, Second is, does God care about me in the middle of it? And third, will any good come of it? And I'll show you as we go how these actually come out of the text. But I think we would say that these are actually very natural questions um, that we want to ask when faced with suffering. And I will say that we will get to talk about Jesus at the end. Uh, that'll be a, a fourth point, uh, illustrate how this works, why Jesus very, very meaningfully picked this psalm to quote. But first, we're going to look at the psalm in its own right. And so let's start with this question. Is this normal? And I mean, there is, there is if, if you look, look on Instagram or look on whatever and just count the number of times that somebody says, I'm trying to normalize this phenomenon. 
um, is something that we do all the time. Um, that when we are, we are faced with some kind of an issue um, that is seemingly is private, uh, and we speak it out loud, and then we get to hear other people who have the same thing and realize it's not so uh, weird after all. This is actually a normal thing um, that people face. Um, young parents, every single time, ask this question. This kid just cries all the time. And can a human being actually be this tired? Like, is this actually how this experience is supposed to work? And of course, everyone who's been there, it is yes. That is completely normal. Um, you are not weird. I mean, how many questions about coming of life, of establishing our own way, asking, is this, is it really supposed to be this stressful? Are normal, other families, do they deal with these kinds of things, these kinds of issues, or is it just me? Uh, this is a really key question. And right out of the gate, what we have here is, this is David, um, who is saying this, who is illustrating with a, for us this phenomenon, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is such a haunting question. Like, it would be, the two things together is what make it so haunting. Like, it's one thing to suffer, it is another thing to suffer and to feel betrayed in the middle of that suffering. And David is the king of Israel. He is the one whom God had covenanted directly with on behalf of the other people, that he will be with them and he will never take this throne away from him. He is God's chosen guy. And there's a sense in which this is saying, on the one hand, if this can happen to David, this can happen to anybody. This is not just a phenomenon that is outside of the walk of faith. And beyond that, David is actually is writing these psalms, not just from a subjective experience, as in this is something that happened to me. He is writing it for the sake of a community of other people who he knows are going to face the same things. He is demonstrating what it is like to walk the walk of faith. And this is this funny verse, which no one really knows what it means. It says that this is according to the doe of the dawn. Um, in the beginning. It's just one of those, again, little reminders that it's, this is probably a kind of music that this was put to. But it is not an insignificant thing that this is a psalm given to the whole community of people, that they were to sing out loud together as a normal part of their worship and their formation as the people of God. And there's, a, I mean, this is, this, is, this is a profound point. There's an emphatic yes it is not all the time, and it can be for many reasons. But yes, this is not always the case that there is something wrong with God or that there is something wrong with us, that this is a part of what it is like to live in a fallen world, that suffering occurs and great hardship can happen. And it goes on to this, we might ask the question, so what kind of situations is it talking about? And there are a wide array and I think this is intentional because it is meant to catch us all um, with various situations that we ourselves face. I mean, we see this just in the emotional feeling of being abandoned, uh, to praying and receiving no answer or seeing no activity um, from God. Uh, we see injustice at the hands of enemies and also with friends. Look in verse 6. Where he says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by, despised by who? The people. Like these people. 
Like these are the people who are supposed to be the congregation of people who are supposed to be the most encouraging and helpful have turned to being inflictors of shame and mockery. We see this sense of shame over our faith, the fact that we have put our faith into this and it doesn't seem to be working. And we see the feelings of being stuck in a situation we cannot get out of, surrounded. And we see these these sensations of feeling poured out, of feeling dry and spent and broken at the hands of others. And I want to add one more thing of just how David engages with these things, um, which I think is one of the most relatable parts of this psalm. Did you notice the back and forth dialogue that is going on? Like, it is not just this is true and then this is true, as if he was writing an essay. Uh, This is what I feel, but this is God and whatever. He keeps going back and forth and back and forth, almost like he's in his head and manic. Like, I'm experiencing this, but I know this. But yet I'm experiencing this, but I know this. And you almost feel the exhaustion that comes with that, of trying to make sense of it, um, even as we read it. And I'm just, why is this, I'm spending a lot of time on this one point, and why is this useful? Why would this at all be useful to us? And I think there's a, few, there's a few ways. One, and this is the hard reality, is sometimes our hearts get in trouble because we expect it shouldn't, get, shouldn't be like this. That has to mean there's something wrong with God or there's something wrong with us. And when we experience what that turns is a desire to try to solve the tension in one way or the other, either by retreating, of growing hard, of growing angry, of ceasing to engage with God, and ceasing to engage with the community. And we are being shown here that that is not necessarily true. It is not necessarily true that there is something that is wrong with both. I think another thing it does is that if that is true, this is actually pushing us to engage with the situation rather than to run away with it. If this is actually part of the context of the life of faith, then there is the implicit reality. This is, this is a part of the, the walk of faith that I am to engage with. It is not a distraction from the more spiritual or the more whatever uh, that we think. But this is a context through which God has given us to walk and given us to engage. And there's a sense in which when we, when we revert to anger or numbness or defensiveness or any of these other tools in order to alleviate the situation, all it does is further alienate us from the reality of what is. There's a sense in which our tears actually hold together the two things. That God is there and we are here. It keeps us firmly rooted in life as it is in the sphere where God has uh, to meet us and to engage with us. The last thing I want to say about this, it also restores us to community. Um, and I, was, I was reading in a, on a different subject. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was reading a book by Wendell Berry, and he made the quote about labor. And he was talking about how kinds of technology actually to alleviate work end up doing more damage um, than they do good. And that what we often fail is, that is in the proverb that says the actual relief to labor is that many hands make light work. And I want to make a parallel to this. 
that when we are restored to the normalcy of the reality of suffering that each of us face, that we are restored together. And we could say this, um, that many hearts make light suffering. It doesn't mean that the suffering does not exist. It does mean that you are not alone. It does lead a sense of compassion um, towards other people. And I tell you that I was stuck in traffic in Atlanta. I know most of my illustrations end up back there yesterday. I was, uh, it was a hard, it was a, I had a lot of my mind, a lot of stress, and was stuck in traffic, and you can ask my wife. I was about to absolutely lose my mind. And these thoughts came through my head. I wonder if this works. I wonder if I could just visualize all the other people stuck in traffic, if that would help me feel better about this place. And it didn't. <laughs> Not at all. But it actually did remind me of you guys. Like as I thought about my community group and I thought about this congregation and I thought about the many things that we have to go together, it did pull me out of myself. It did replace in some ways those feelings of anger, of anger and frustration with a sense of compassion towards other people. And that is one of the most important things I think that we can, that is a, is a reality of when we actually face suffering of what, as what it is, is that we find out that we are less alone and it actually pulls us out of our isolation and pushes us towards each other. Um, that was a lot on that point, but I think one of the big things that we have to notice here is that while all that's true, and while there are some practical helps of realizing that is this normal, that doesn't actually make it better all on its own. Just because it's normal doesn't make it better. And we could apply that to all kinds of other things. And let me point out these things that he says here of how the psalmist engages with the suffering that he faces. He looks at two things. First, he looks back at the previous generations of Israel and shows that the ones who have gone before me have actually felt the same things. But where the psalmist does not have the longevity of perspective to see how this all works out, he does have examples of actually help to deliver. And I want to make a plug here just practically for this, that generational memory in our community is a really important thing. And it is not to say that, you know, if you've been through a lot and you might not, that you might not necessarily feel wiser because of that, but there is something that is powerful just about telling the stories. This is where I was stuck. And this is what happened. And that younger people like me really need that. That multi-generational community of sharing the stories of faith are a really important way that we form each other. We help each other as a body. But it, the past action of God actually says something about him because of past memory. And he also does the same thing with himself later on. He actually looks back at his own story and sees how God had walked with him through all kinds of stages, even from the very beginning. That even his source of life has been until now has been a gift of God where he has walked it with him. And it comes to this point. Uh, look in verse 19. Remember I've said this. Um, it's not, if you look at it in your Bibles in verse 19, you would see that Lord is capitalized there, which I've said this before. If that's all capitals, that means this is God's covenant name. And that name has been absent up to this point. But from that point on, it features very frequently. This is the name whereby God covenanted himself with his people. 
where he entered into their lives and made promises to them that he put his own name on the line, that if these promises fail, it is not just on you, but it is also on me. God threw his own stake into the ring. And these old stories, they have brought him back to confront what is other faced, in addition to just the suffering that is faced. That God does care, he has to. If he doesn't, he would be in conflict with himself. And that has not released the tension at this point. In some ways, it has actually made it stronger, but it has kept the tension in balance. That whereas this suffering is true, then God's care and commitment to his people is just as true. He has to care. There is no other way around it. We might not know exactly how this is all going to come right, but God's faithfulness, as demonstrated by his work in the past, is just as true as present suffering. Let me move on to the third point. I'm going to come back to more of this when we talk about Jesus in a second. Um, another interesting thing about this psalm is this is it's bringing out this question of will any good come good come from it, and that can be a glib thing that we don't really want to think about. As in, you know, you know, it, it would be easy to say, well, just hang on and you'll see some aspect of good and that'll make it all worth it. If you've been through suffering, then you know there's not a lot that's going to make it all worth it. That's not a formula that is just going to solve the suffering. But I want, to see, I want you to see what the psalmist does. In the end, notice who the psalmist is talking about when he starts this outflow of praise based on his, his memory that God has to care for him in the middle of it. He starts talking about other people frequently. That whereas the other people who are mocking him, these are the people who are actually going to join him because of this. And it is not just these people, but it is to the ends of the earth. This whole section, which is almost half the psalm, is caught up not just in the situation of the sufferer, but in the bigger mission of God. And there is an interesting sense in this in which, that again, the psalmist doesn't know how this formula works, and it is certainly not a formula. But that there is some way that if you are committed to God in this upside-down kind of dynamic that even the, the sufferings and the most isolated sensations of God's people somehow contribute to this bigger thing that God is doing. That he is bent and determined not only to do his own people good, but to do those good beyond him. And how do we know that's true? Again, I come to this and I don't know. I don't know how that works. But here's two things I do know. Uh, Charles reminded me this week, and which was very helpful, and it, it helped me to remember several more even after our conversation, that there are several pastors who have said, who are very gifted and very competent speakers, that it is the sufferings that I have experienced that have actually had more impact on people than any of the words I've ever said. Was, how does it work? I don't know. But I have seen that personally. And the reason I believe it is not just because of that testimony, but because that is actually the pattern of Jesus. That those who follow Jesus are following Jesus on this pattern of the one who experienced suffering greatly. Somehow it was through that 
that he was able to bring salvation and deliverance to all people. And there has to be that kind of, that, that kind of a, um, it's not a formula, but that kind of thing um, that makes an impact on our lives as we walk and we follow Jesus. And I want to say all of this comes straight out of this psalm. That these are, these are, these are these other aspects of God's character and of, and of what it means to be a part of the people of God that this psalm has been inviting God's people to struggle with throughout all the generations before Jesus even came on the scene. And when Jesus comes and he takes up these words, it is very significant. It is not anything different than any of these things that is said. But I want us, we would not, I don't think we would be doing ourselves or it justice unless we think about what Jesus actually did. When he came and he lived and he chose these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me while he hung on the cross? And I think there are three ways. I think that he is answering all three questions. In great pains, if you follow the gospel narratives and this psalm, that Jesus is taking up aspects of this psalm almost demonstrating in his life the realities that we see in this psalm. And I actually don't think these are just predictions into the future. I think Jesus is very intentionally, when we see reference of even casting lots for his clothing, he says these words, that Jesus is actually very intentionally walking the same road as the people of God have walked for many generations. He is the true example, the one who is the perfect, innocent who had never done anything wrong, and who was absolutely unjustly treated because of that. But all out of true obedience to his father and confidence in that obedience to continue to walk that road and to do it. It is because of Jesus that we know absolutely, as we face the same phenomena, that we are not, finace, we are not facing this phenomena alone. That when we cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That we are crying with the cry of our Savior, who walked in those shoes but more, and with us cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he does more than that. He is more than just an example. When Jesus is hanging there on the cross and he chooses to say these words, he is actually answering the relational question also. Does God care about me in this position? And the answer to that can only be yes. And we may never know the why, and we may never be able to make sense of it. But what we have in Jesus is the tension displayed between the presence of suffering and the presence of God's care. But in the middle of that, as he embraces that tension on for our sake, he is also showing us that while we don't see everything in subjection to him, and if we look at Hebrews chapter 2, um, it says this, Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him that is mankind, He left nothing outside of his control, but at present we do not see everything in subjection to him meaning the way that the world was supposed to work. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone.
whatever the suffering you are in, as that is the question, does God care? Jesus picks up those very words in order to say and to demonstrate the answer has to be yes. And the last thing, in, in, the fa- in reference to what is all this going to mean in the end, one of the hard realities is that we actually don't have the strength, no matter what, to endure what Jesus did, much less what we have to endure in our own lives. But how the strength that we have to walk in and the plan of how this is all going to work other, how this is going to come good, it is specifically tied with Jesus who is hanging on the cross, who did it through suffering, through death, who was the one even in his resurrection that took suffering and he turned it upside down and said, this is the way, but this is the way that I'm going to redeem my people in my power. The power to walk this path is being in Christ. It is not being Christ. Christ gave himself for you so that whatever you are in, whenever you quake, whenever you lose your temper, whenever you don't have the strength to hold it all together, Jesus has given himself so that he can carry you and that you can walk in his footsteps and that he can give you his power. I want to close with this illustration that I in no way am competent to give because I am a man and not a woman, but I'm going to give this on behalf of stories that I've heard, particularly my wife who is a birth worker. Um, And so this is just me using the platform to pass on things that I don't actually have firsthand experience in. That's what I'm trying to say. And illustrations for what it is like to go through the Christian life and how the greatest of pain actually ends up serving to bring about a new life. And one thing that Lauren has always said is that in the room with women, sometimes what I see that is so sad is they will just fight it, fight the pain every step of the way. And I know that's probably how you feel in whatever it is that you're in, that the pain is too much, we can't take it, it doesn't matter what the good is going to be, I can't take it. What I'm trying to say is that you, you have something really rich in Jesus. Someone to walk with you of and someone else's power. So that all of those things, all that pain can end up giving life to something good in the end. Let me pray for us. Father, again, we just ask humbly that you would have mercy on our weak hearts in our weak souls, that as we suffer, uh, that we would continue to turn to you and look to you for help. And would you meet us there with all of the power uh, that we actually need. It's in you that we look to for hope. In Jesus' name, amen.